Welcome to Berlin Inside Out, the podcast that takes an expert look at how Germany sees the world and the world sees Germany. With me, Benjamin Tallis. And me, Aaron Gash Burnett. Welcome back to Berlin Inside Out, the podcast that takes an expert look at international politics from Berlin in association with the German Council on Foreign Relations. I'm Benjamin Tallis, Senior Research Fellow here at the Council, and I'm here with my friend and co-host Aaron Gashburnett, a journalist specializing in German politics. Now, Aaron, last week we kicked off the second half of our season, where we start going into the key relationships Germany has with its allies and explore how those need to be re-evaluated and reinvigorated for the country to have a successful foreign policy transformation. And we started with Central and Eastern Europe during our recent trip to Prague. And Ben, we did that for a reason. Uh, we will, of course, get to Paris and Washington. Listeners, don't worry about that. But we made a deliberate choice to start with the countries who have long understood the moment we're in geopolitically, geoeconomically, the countries whose warnings over Russian imperialism, the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline, and indeed even Chinese bullying recently. Those are warnings that Germany long dismissed as paranoia, driven by emotional historical memory rather than cold, hard facts and the supposedly easy money that authorities offered. Well, these countries ended up being right, as we've discovered, um, since, especially since February 2022. And as Caroline de Groeter put it so wonderfully in our last episode, these countries are now finding their own voice at EU and NATO tables after so many years of being relegated to, as Thomas Ilvis put it last week, the kids table. And it is not only Germany's relationship with Central and Eastern Europe that needs reevaluating. We're starting this part of the season by going east because all of Germany's key relationships are going to need to be reevaluated to take leadership from this part of Europe into account. So that's why we're having an Eastern start. And there's one place where that foreign policy leadership is particularly evident, right? And we're talking about the Baltics. That's right, Aaron. The Baltic states have been way out in front in terms of both moral and material leadership on responding to Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And this has shone the spotlight on those countries that haven't engaged in proper leadership, including Germany. And I think what you mentioned about reevaluating relationships is key to understanding what would make a successful transformation, a successful Titan vendor. This is about Germany finding its foreign policy identity, finding its role, but understanding that it's playing as part of a team. And finding how to be a better team player is a key aspect of understanding how we can do better together, how we can actually leverage those relationships for the kind of goals that we all share in the European Union, the kind of goals we share in NATO, and how to advance the agenda of liberal democracies more generally. Exactly. And Germany's challenge here, especially with the Baltics and some of the other smaller countries in Europe, is to see them not simply in terms of the size of their economies or the size of their militaries, but in terms of the example they set and how Germany can learn from that example. That's one of the reasons we go here first. Right. And to get comfortable with them taking the lead on certain things. Yeah. This notion of who leads and when is a key question, we think, in overall uh, re in the overall transformation of Germany's foreign policy, being comfortable with diffuse leadership, with letting others set the pace at times and being there to support them while not castigating them for their failings, but helping them cover up for them, helping them actually uh, overcome them. And the same, of course, goes the other way. So what we want to see through all of these discussions about Germany's relationships is a more constructive, more mutually beneficial understanding of how we relate to each other and how we act as allies. We chat to an all-star Baltic panel, starting off with Artis Pabrik, he is a former deputy prime minister, foreign minister, and defense minister for Latvia. He's seen foreign policy from just about every angle. With him is Marco Mikkelsen, 
chair of the Estonian Parliament's Foreign Affairs Committee, and Marco's Lithuanian counterpart Zygimantas Pavlionis joins us a little bit later in the chat. He is the chair of the Lithuanian Parliament's Foreign Affairs Committee. We started by asking them about how smaller countries like theirs can still find ways to lead by example. Gentlemen, it is an honor to have you join us on Berlin Side Out. Among the topics we want to ask you about is one that we both think deserves a lot more attention in both Germany's foreign policy discussions and Europe's as a whole in general, and that is small state influence and leading by example. Uh, Germany may be the second largest supplier of arms to Ukraine in absolute terms, but Estonia is far ahead in relative terms, spending more than 1% of its GDP on arms. Ukraine. Plus, we also saw that Estonia and the other Baltic countries led on everything from banning Russian flights uh, from their airspace in February 2022 before the rest of Europe followed suit. Where does this tradition of bold foreign policy leadership come from? If you feel uh, existential threat constantly uh, on your borders, then you understand also what are those, let's say, uh, critical uh, questions you have to answer and also policies to carry out. As you know, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, we have been pretty vocal about this kind of growing threat from the East, from Russia for many years. Myself, uh, as a journalist, I worked in Moscow mid-90s. I covered first Chechen war and actually I understood already that time that the idea of uh, building back the Russian Empire is not gone or it is very uh, vividly there in, in the minds of uh, Russian leadership. Uh, and I argue that uh, that time we didn't have Vladimir Putin or those KGB guys uh, on top of Russian power. This has been a kind of long tradition of ours to be very clear what it takes uh, from our side to defend our sovereignty and independence. And uh, we understood from the very beginning of early 90s that only together with allies in the region, partners and neighbors, and also, of course, uh, in the wider West, we have to act together. And here, Estonia and Latvia, Lithuania, others uh, have been very much kind of in leading position uh, when it comes to what to do with Russia. Absolutely right. And Artist Latvia has been in the first rank of the response as well uh, in GDP terms, but also rhetorically. And you famously said here in Berlin last year, you challenged the German audience. You said, are we paying lip service to these values that we talk about so much? You know, we in the Baltic states, we're ready to die for freedom. Are you? Do you think people in Germany have got the message now? I think that uh, people around the world are getting the message uh, at this moment. The question is about the speed and the numbers. But uh, referring to what Marco told, um, look, we never had this pleasure in the Baltic countries, and I would say now also in Finland uh, or in Poland, to live lives um, under the idea of wishful thinking. Because uh, if we make mistakes, that for us is of existential threat. And I have to quote here the first uh, European political scientist, Nicola Machiavelli, the biggest mistake of any politician is really to live in illusions. And I would say that one of the problems is what we see in, in Western societies, that uh, they have been, at least some parts of them, they have been ready to trade security for comfort. 
we cannot afford this. You can paraphrase Churchill. You want uh, your trade security for comfort, you lose both. There you go. Exactly right. Um, but this is interesting. You mentioned uh, the geographical aspect to this, that the Russian threat is up close and extremely personal for a lot of people in the Baltics. But there's more to it than that, right, Aaron? Are your strong positions based mainly on historical grievance, for example? That's certainly a part of it. Or is there more to it? And uh, the other possibility as well is why do you think Baltic states have processed the history of Russian occupation differently than, for example, some other states. Hungary, for example. I mean, Hungary has a history of Russian occupation too, but they've reacted rather differently. Marco, what do, what do you think about that? Hungary still, yes, they witnessed quite horrible moments in their history, uh, specifically after World War II. But we have a longer, I'm not saying tradition, but experience with Russians being under Russian Empire for 200 years uh, and for 400 of years uh, threatened and conquered or, or uh, attacked by Russia from uh, Middle Ages. During our most difficult times uh, in recent history in 1940s or during World War II and right after, every single family in our countries uh, was somehow affected either uh, with deportations, killings, uh, or emigration, or, or so. We sense this history still differently than uh, perhaps specifically when you talk about Hungary, for instance. It would be a wrong assessment also from our friends and allies in other Western countries to think that now we are judging current uh, Russian politics or we were judging Russian policies uh, shortly before the invasion in Ukraine because of our bitter memories or wish for the revenge or something. Not at all. Yes, there is no basically family in Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania which would not suffer under the Russians. But our political decision-making, uh, our stances uh, um, in the last 30 years was not based on the bitterness of the past. It was based on a sober analysis of what is happening at this moment in Russia. And history only helped us to clarify and understand that, in fact, as a Russian society, differently from German society, uh, and Russian uh, leadership, differently from German leadership, didn't change very much. We can see this with all the fatalities, rapes and killings in Ukraine. And this is, in fact, very much confirming uh, also our historic pattern. And I remember my first night in uh, on 24th of February when Russians invaded Ukraine, when our security services called me four o'clock in the morning and told that this is starting. And I remember that my first feeling was this is probably what our parents endured or, or were feeling, let's say, 1939-1940. But it would be a wrong assessment to say that this is because of our bitterness. And, and this is actually what some of our partners before the war were kind of uh, blaming us. Okay, we, you know, we are these troublemakers in the Baltics who are simply not willing to love Russians because they are nice people and, and this country is wonderful. We will integrate trade, gasoline and oil, and everything will be fine. It was wrong, but it was wrong not because of uh, history, it was wrong because of today. So history as an education, not as an obsession, I think it's really important to understand. It's a common mistake people make here, I think. This experience, mostly bitter experience from Russia, helped us to build uh, resilience in our society and, and understanding uh, of the importance of uh, what we do. Uh, including also there is a wide support 
among our people or population today, then uh, politicians have decided to put significant sums and the money into the defense. Uh, all our countries are uh, going to have uh, defense expenditures uh, above the level of 3% of GDP in Estonia from next year on, 3.2% for at least for next 10 years. And this is very, very expensive for a small country and for a small ex economy like, uh, like ours. But again, you can do it because uh, society understands that if we don't do that, we, we might be back in those terrible times as uh, our parents or grandparents uh, went through. 3.2% of GDP. Getting Germany to that figure seems like an impossible dream, to be quite honest. We can't get to 2% of GDP here. Why not? You need just leadership. Indeed you do. And this is where I think the unevenness of response has been most manifest. Uh, it's not only that the Baltic states showed a better understanding of history and of the present, but that they're looking more clearly to the future than Germany and some other countries are. And that's partly a function of leadership. What has really stood out about leadership in the Baltic countries in the last uh, two years? Artist, you, you were one of those leaders for some time, so talk about yourself or others as you, as you were. <laughs> well, you know, politicians are always talking about themselves, but of course I'm not currently in any position. But look, uh, we, of course, from the very beginning, um, were very much concerned about the consequences of the full-scale uh, war against Ukraine because we understood that if Ukraine falls, we will be next. And this stands true also today. And when I hear that uh, some of our allies uh, or uh, some analysts in, in allied countries are telling that, look, our Western societies are getting tired, and etc. From what are you getting tired? I mean, Ukrainians are actually dying in trenches at this moment, and we are getting tired. And uh, if we don't want, you know, to engage ourselves in a full warfare, either in the Baltics, Finland or Poland in the following years, then just please uh, bring yourself together uh, deliver all what is needed, financial and military assistance to Ukraine, because I have to repeat once more, the Western economy and allied economy, including also our friends, for instance, in such countries as Japan, is somewhere around 50% of the world economy. The Russian economy is a bit more than Canadian economy. So can't we really put our economy under the wartime rules and start to produce something and deliver something. Because one thing is to go to Rammstein and tell these promises that, okay, we again agreed to give something to Ukrainians. But then we forget to tell that uh, these deliverances are coming maybe six months or a year too late. <laughs> They're not coming immediately. And people are dying because of uh, is this inconvenience, let's put it like this. So just to bring yourself together. This is it, right? We don't have the right to get tired because this is also about our future. And it's about that understanding that connection between getting the investment together now, getting our choices that we make now in the right way. Isn't it, Marco? Absolutely, because uh, we are actually in a very critical situation right now. We all hope and uh, we all work for that Ukraine will win in this war. But the uh, situation is critical in my understanding that we are we, as a uh, Western allies, partners of Ukraine, still don't understand that this is not only war about Ukraine. This is war about our uh, world order uh, in many ways. And uh, time to time when I hear, and sometimes here in Berlin, and also you can hear that, oh, why uh, we cannot give Tauruses to, uh, to Ukrainians? Perhaps this will escalate the war to the level of World War III or something like that. 
And I argue that, as artists mentioned, you know, if Ukraine will fail, the next us, but an us meaning not only Baltic nations, but NATO. That will be the Western, uh, the, the major conflict uh, we all don't want to see happen. And this is why we, we have to put more money into not only defense expenditures, but to industry, because Russia right now is producing twice as much uh, shells as uh, we do collectively. Well, that, that's it. And I think still this basic mechanics of deterrence are not properly understood in many countries. The, the idea that this would escalate if you stand up strongly. The opposite has proven to be true. And this is what we know. If you invest in defense, you're less likely to have to fight. You invest so that you don't have to lose those weapons. That's the point, isn't it? And of course, the other thing is that we keep repeating that we stand with Ukraine as long as needed. Actually, honestly, I don't understand what that means. What that standing means. That means that you don't have strategy. You don't understand, or kind of, I don't understand what next, what we should do with Russia, the aggressor state. And I, I argue that not only that we have to be with Ukraine till the victory, but also that victory should mean also that this kind of Russia is strategically minimum weakened, but better defeated. I think it was Gabrielis Landsbergis who said the other day, he said, what is the it in as long as it takes? That's the crucial thing. And exactly that strategic ambiguity only plays into to Putin's hands. So how, how can we overcome that, artists? What do we need there? Well, it's not easy because um, I think in Western societies, people have been fed for a very long time with kind of, uh, I would say, wrong paradigms. And uh, if I have to be critical to ourselves, um, uh, I would say that uh, I have been in politics now 18 years, permanently in some ministerial positions mainly, but also in, in different parliaments, European Parliament and National Parliament. And when I have to speak about security, uh, it was not like I had to fight, let's say, Russians or opponents, because uh, we know what they want, and I believe they know what we want. But the biggest problem was always to convince our friends and allies, like in an old Greek saying, because they simply don't listen. They don't try to understand how deep the problem can be if you postpone it, if you try to sol uh, solve uh, secondary or third term issues. And I will not be probably extremely popular in a number of Western societies, but I, of course, understand that, uh, for instance, um, climate is a huge challenge to all of us. But I don't think that these people which are here, for instance, in Germany, trying to uh, kind of glue themselves to any possible places or, or running to museums in, in some countries, in Western countries, and, uh, and um, pouring uh, on hundreds years old artworks color, that they understand that Actually, their climate activism will be not needed if your country and democracy will simply be crushed under the, uh, let's say, Russian weapons, which can happen. Our fight, or is to say struggle, was always to try to convince our partners to act timely in order not to make this uh, problem larger. So, so the problem is among friends. It's not among, uh, among uh, enemies and... Uh, 
I'd like to back up to history and memory culture for just a moment, because I think that uh, German memory culture, which we often make a lot of in this particular country, can learn a lot, actually, from Baltic memory culture. And the reason I say this is because the main nightmare for Germany is war, and the main nightmare for the Baltics is occupation. And uh, I have, for example, visited the Museum of the Occupation in Riga, and I've also visited the ones in Tallinn and Vilnius. And one thing that you will see there that you won't typically see in a German museum is a lot of detail on the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, for example. Whereas in Germany, quite often, uh, the discussion, uh, whether on the talk shows or anything else, is of the of the Soviets or the Russians even as being liberators, and we forget. Um, certain crimes that happened, for example, in occupied East Germany, that sort alliances. of thing. Yes, exactly. For so, two years. So what do, you think, uh, what do you think we could learn here, even in our own memory culture, from Baltic memory culture, and how do you think that would be relevant to our view of Russia today if we were to be able to do that? I think uh, our observation, my observation about Germany is that, that uh, they have been kind of taught or they learned themselves that everything which is connected with military is bad, uh, with army it's bad, with soldiers is bad, and then there comes this... Um, kind of uh, naive, idealistic um, approach that, look, if we would not have an army and if we would not have weapons and if we will not involve into the defense of somebody, then there will be peace. No. Then simply those who are violent, those criminals, they will take over because, you know, if, if, if I want to be very politically or rhetorically offensive, I can imagine uh, certain German politicians in the previous times when they were, for instance, willing uh, to send some caskets maybe to Ukraine or um, as one of the first... 5,000 helmets, the Yes, thing. or some proposals that, oh, the, war, the world war starts in Europe. Okay, maybe we can send a um, military hospital, which is a good idea. But I would compare this like I'm walking on the streets of Berlin and I can see that somebody is offending an innocent person. Then I sit down, take my cafe latte, and once the job is finished, I'm calling to ambulance and, and paying a bill. This is not what we, what we would want to expect from our alliance. We want that we, first of all, prevent this crime, and secondly, if the crime is committed, we stop it as soon as possible. And you cannot do this without army, without soldiers, without shells, without weapons. Sorry, the life is not beautiful around. You know, as, a, as an historian, I, I think uh, the best possible way here to, uh, to act is to uh, fill all those white spots or blanks uh, in, in, in our history or histories uh, and, and don't, do, do not have a, any taboos. Because I, I remember when I, I was in uh, Soviet schools, of course, we were told completely different history and I was taught to, to different history. And only then we regained our independence, our nation started to really regain full and open uh, memory of everything what happened. But what, what ha when we talk about World War II and specifically what was at the beginning and what, how did it end, then, uh, and this is not only about Germany, I think it's also about our general understanding that guilt is, and the guilt is not only here in, in Germany in terms of who started the World War II, but also in Moscow, in, in Russia. And actually, they didn't pay any price for that. Uh, and uh, this is why 
we in, in Estonia and in Latvia, we argue that we have a unique, unique mo moment at the moment to really bring those who committed the highest crime against the peace nowadays, uh, the aggression against uh, one independent nation, all those perpetrators like Putin, Shoigu, Lavrov and others must be brought to the special tribunal which should be established by the vote in General Assembly. As a liberal person, I don't like this kind of uh, collective guilt approaches because I always would like to see the individual responsibility. But as far as the Russian invasion in Ukraine, I would say that uh, the loss for Russians as a society would be extremely beneficial because people and also nations, they don't learn from victories so much as they learn from losses. And Russians have been always feeding through their propaganda to their public that, you know, they are invincible, they are always on the right side, and they had never chance to sit down and think how much wrong they did and how much wrong they do. Well, this is right. I mean, Richard von Weizsäcker famously said, you know, the defeat liberated Germans from themselves, from their past in that way, and from the, that culture. That's perhaps something Russia could certainly learn. But I have what might be a slightly provocative question to you both. What can the Baltic states learn from Germany, in, be it in memory culture, for example, for what crimes were committed during the Second World War on Baltic territory, or from in, more generally, what, what else could uh, the Baltic states learn from Germany? I have been for years a very pro-German politician, and I would say that uh, Baltic uh, and uh, German cultures, in fact, are very close, and, and just the numbers are different, and etc. And uh, I think what is uh, what what usually, let's say, what Latvians would like with Germans would be rather how they can concentrate uh, on their work, how 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 they can build the things uh, technologically and etc. But uh, to be honest, uh, if uh, we are... Uh, so in history, we find a lot of good things. And I actually would say that what Latvians should do themselves, um, I don't know about Estonians, we should definitely reassess our own history as far as uh, Middle Ages and, and times uh, until we regained independence because... We have so many nice uh, cultural uh, architectonic things which are actually done by our co-work with Germans, and we were neglecting this while building our nation-state. I think that um, sometimes, um, I would say, public in Latvia is a little bit amazed uh, and, and confused that the Germans are not ready to fast enough to change this mindset to become, in our understanding, a normal nation in a sense which also understands its responsibilities towards other countries as far as the security. I lately had a very um, a long talk with uh, Japanese representatives from the De Ministry of Defense, and actually they are going through a, a similar reassessment of their own history, but Japanese, for instance, as far as military, within five years, they are ready to rise their defense budget from 1% to 2 So, So they're doing this very fast. Right, it's a question of will and choice and political leadership and responsibility, as we said before. Marco, what, what would you say? You know, it's very uh, difficult and uh, partly, you're right, provocative question, but, you know, we had such a long history for many centuries, actually, which binds us uh, in many ways and, uh, you know, Baltic-German uh, communities and the history behind, which actually brought so much 
interesting, uh, you know, cultural whatever uh, opportunities for our people all who live in in, uh, in our countries. And uh, and this is not only what happened, you know, during the last hundred years. It's, uh, as I said, for many centuries. And actually that gave us uh, kind of the, the place we, we belong to, uh, Europe as it is. And uh, perhaps one is what I think is fascinating uh, that from this past Germany had and the kind of the search of its identity as as a European nation and through the wars and uh, traumatic events, Germany is now one of the still most important leaders in terms of uh, European unity and uh, how do we should see Europe as a whole and uh, and united and uh, and uh, and this is something where sometimes we tend to forget that it's not only our nations like small or big but you know knowing what kind of world we full of challenges are around us not only with Russia, but also China and others, meaning that, you know, it's leadership which should go beyond your own borders. It's something what uh, definitely we could learn from each other even uh, nowadays. Well, this is it. I think a lot of the criticism that's come to Germany is because people know what value a fully team-playing Germany that took its responsibility for that leadership seriously would have for the whole of the European team. If Germany were to see the world in a more realistic way, if it were actually to exercise that responsibility, it would make a huge difference. And so the frustration among many of Germany's allies, I think, with not living up to that responsibility drives a lot of the criticism at the moment. But I hope that if you really put uh, Zeitenwende in, into work, right now this is still is as, as a sort of slogan and uh, kind of an actually very good uh, term in terms to understand where are we, and not only Germany, but uh, the West in general, uh, then it comes to facing those challenges coming from the East. But this is a unique moment, I, I guess, for Germany as well to find uh, how important is actually leadership. I think that uh, this war actually uh, makes us better to understand who is who among our friends, to whom we can rely more, to whom we can rely less, and who is speaking only about values in the peace times and who is implementing the value policy in the times of troubled waters. And, and this is where we, we are checking each other, in fact, now. I want to actually come back to this whole theme of responsibility that you were talking about earlier and German responsibility. It reminds me of a previous episode in which Roderick Parks here at DJP said that many German politicians and indeed even the public isn't even necessarily aware of the kind of responsibility that or special responsibility that it has for German security. So I'd like to ask you uh, from outside of Germany, what do you think German responsibility or special responsibility is in that regard for European security? Well, Germany is uh, the largest country and most capable country in European continent. So that would mean that Germany must look with uh, clear and open eyes to all the security challenges and must be ready to deal with it. And I think the problem for the last decades was that Germany simply was incapable to take part in uh, solving those challenges. And it was unwilling to do this because as I was sometimes telling to also our German uh, friends, that uh, stop hiding behind your history. Stop hiding behind your history. It's different time. Do it now. Make your army, sorry to say, produce your weapons, 
make us feel more secure because the German army is at this moment, uh, yes, it's advancing with big steps, but it's not where it should be. No, that's right. And this puts on a fine point, Germany's memory culture as being one of selective memory culture because this notion of German being de-armed and pacified and so on after the Second World War rather ignores then the massive contribution that Germany made to NATO during the Cold War time. Half a million men under arms, 5,000 main battle tanks, frontline state and behaving like one too. I was last year invited to to participate one public event in uh, Dresden and actually I was shocked I didn't know that uh, in your schools it's not a good sort of mood to invite uh, military people to give a lesson or some to speak to uh, to children it was uh, truly shocking for me because how you know how come in Estonia I know in Latvia the same way that we have obligatory already sort of subject of defense uh, as such or defense issues and how come you can uh, build this sort of positive patriotism uh, nowadays when you need uh, society to be ready to defend itself it's seems to me that in a number of countries, including Germany, but also in the western part of Europe, public uh, the people in general don't probably get yet that uh, those challenges uh, are uh, much more serious than just uh, people think that this, the war is going on, some parts of Ukraine or Middle East is boiling or so, and that sort of has happened always. But today... It seems to me that, uh, you know, this is why the leadership is so uh, important to tell uh, that the leaders must tell the people that, yes, we have to today think differently right, and not to hide behind the history and right. not doing anything. So. Yeah, not hide behind the history, but also to bring that around and ignore what, what we sometimes call the Beach Boys School of Security Studies, the kind of wouldn't it be nice if we didn't have to have a military? Wouldn't it be nice if we didn't have to, et cetera, et cetera, and thereby changing the place in society society of the military, understanding it is acceptable for military people to come and talk in schools, that these are admirable people to look up to who are doing something that the nation should be proud of, rather than something that you want to hide in the closet of history somehow. We've also seen a change in German public opinion, especially around the attitude of weapons, which I think we do have to also point out. I mean, my one of my favorite polls to cite is how in January 2022, almost three quarters of Germans were against delivering any sort of weapon to Ukraine whatsoever. And that changed very, very, very quickly. Um, to a majority uh, supporting heavy weapons and, and, and that sort of thing. Still we are there and uh, Germany is still discussing to give Tauruses or not to give Tauruses. Yeah, it feels like Groundhog Day sometimes. That seems that. to contrast, the political elite opinion seems to contrast with what the public actually thinks, which leads me to ask... Uh, if there's so if that sort of societal dialogue opens a opportunity for sort of a new uh, way of handling Baltic-German relations as well. Well, I believe that um, Latvians, Estonians, Lithuanians, we can contribute actually to this debate in Germany uh, to bring it closer to people's minds because I, I wanted with empathy to think, for instance, this morning while jogging in Tiergarten, how would traditional German, let's say, perceive uh, the military action or the war in general today? And, and my feeling is that not only in Germany, but in a number of Western countries, not so much maybe in Latvia, uh, they would still think that, oh, if the war is happening, it's something like somebody has to go to fight, but I'm still enjoying my coffee uh, or taking my pretzel. It's not affecting me. Well, we in the Baltics, knowing that we have, of course, limited resources, but 
everybody has limited resources, we are a small country. We think in terms, what should I do? How can I contribute? Uh, a little bit maybe similar to Israeli policy today, that people are going to planes and flying back. So the German society, I believe, or the ordinary German youngster on the streets, he or she still doesn't uh, think in a terms that the war might affect him or her personally immediately and asks uh, and, and it will demand your action. You will not be capable just to sit and observe because then you simply will be killed. Absolutely. And this understanding that how it involves you, and I mean, it goes back to something quite basic. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country and for your allies while you're at it at that matter, because our basis of security, stability, and a future depends on this. Just to say, we've just been joined by Gigimantis Pavilionis, who is here as well, just to pivot slightly from talking about the past, indeed, to this moment of the present. And what else could Germany learn from the Baltic states, which are some of the most forward-looking, I think, in the whole European Union, looking to the future? How would you describe that, first of all? Each of you can join in on that. And then how do we actually impart that to Germans as well? Well, I don't know whether you touched that issue or not, but what I think, like comparing us to you, first of all, you have to detach from autocratic regimes whom you are financing, whom you are feeding, because those tigers sooner or later come and eat us. Uh, and they are starting. Uh, you know, you see what Russia is doing. Uh, you see what's Iran doing in the region, building his muscles. I didn't even touch China's issue. Everywhere it's Germany. And it's like this schizophrenia of German politics, though you, your foundations created us, I am the product of Junger Union from 92. I am the caste product. And I learned that this is kind of wrong. You have to fight for values, for morals, da, 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 da. And you created the European Union that also is kind of you know, another mirror of wars. But on the other hand, your business, your companies, it's, you know, they are feeding the tigers. They are creating problems. They are sharing technologies. And we say, stop, please. I was deputy foreign minister together with Still, Lech Kaczynski trying to block German, uh, you know, willingness to create post-PCA agreement with Russia when Putin was just rising. You know, he started to make all those nasty things after kind of Yeltsin, whatever democracy they had. And, and we were screaming and shouting to Germans, guys, this is the KGB who is trying to kill the elements of us in Russian body. Why do you finance this guy? Why do you try to open the markets? And then the same happened with Georgia. You know, well, before it was Bucharest NATO summit, I was looking to German eyes and trying to understand why do they take in this Putin's argument that NATO enlargement would provoke the war, you know? And, and that kind of argument now goes into the bodies of Bidens and other nice uh, little uh, big leaders. and. You know, wake up, decouple, decouple from China, decouple from Iran, you know, embrace liberal and democratic countries, embrace Indo-Pacific. It's enough for German business, please. You know, in Lithuania, you are number one investor and trading partner. You are number one security provider. But stop feeding our enemies, you know. 
stop feeding those who actually destroyed Berlin, including. Marco, I want to ask you a little bit, because that, that's key, what uh, Gigas just said about defending and about taking out these sources of threat and our own active contribution to our own demise through that corporate activity and others. But there's also other aspects to the forward-looking elements of the Baltic states. Estonia is known as a leader in digital technology. Um, what is it that has propelled that kind of forward-looking mentality in Estonia, do you think? I guess this is the same uh, applies to all three of us. Then we regained our independence and, uh, you know, being occupied for <clears throat> 50 years, we understood that, uh, you know, we could be much better off if uh, we could be a free nation or, you know, for those free, 50 years. And we were lucky in a way that uh, we regained our independence at the time and technological re revolution was in uh, in a good motion and we jumped on this train and, uh, and uh, in some somehow also in, in the leading position of that train. And uh, and as a small society, perhaps free of some sort of, uh, I'm not saying illusions, but also uh, unnecessary threats, uh, then uh, of how society or free society must be constructed, then uh, this was possible at that time. Perhaps, I must say, today, if we could do the same, I'm not sure that we could be able to find this so societal agreement. But again, you know, the, the, the catch-up mentality uh, is very similar in all our countries because we would like to be as allied as possible, as better off as possible in terms of economies and the, the level of uh, the living and not only be a free riders. Uh, it comes to the security, but also in terms of uh, how our societies uh, develop. So it's, we, we always try to develop our societies and countries in best possible way and learning from best possible practices. Right, I mean, this is the benefit of freedom and this is the fruits of freedom, which then is, uh, it's very interesting you mentioned it, so you see it as a duty to develop the positive sides of that as well. We are very lucky to have such a good friends and neighbours like Latvians and Lithuanians <laughs> and Swedes <laughs> and Finns. See, see how the Latvians <laughs> feel about that, artists. <laughs> All three Baltic states are the fastest uh, developing economies in uh, Europe. That, that's a fact in European Union. We look, of course, for our um, niche products because we know that we cannot produce so much as, for instance, Germany, but we can do something perfect, something maybe smaller, which is missing somewhere else in the world. And secondly, after uh, uh, Soviets and Russians left us, for us maybe it was easier. We did not need maybe to reform everything because it was anyway like after the war. So we started to build from new and to build a new house, sometimes it's easier than to restore the old one. Lithuania was uh, the first, I believe, in the EU to have an Indo-Pacific strategy. And obviously there's been a lot of tension with China uh, that you've had to endure, um, sometimes without a lot of support uh, either. What drove you to actually make this strategy and to basically say China is still a threat and it's still a priority, uh, despite the fact that you've been the first essentially to do so and that uh, some other states have belatedly noticed this? Well, communists are always and everywhere the same communist and uh, we don't understand why don't you see this way you know and those communists are the most powerful communists on this planet who killed the biggest number of people on this planet so why do you invest into that biggest autocratic monster that makes all other monsters to work for them russia is becoming a gasoline station of of uh, china and Russia is working then with Iran, and then Iran does what, what he does in, in Israel today. 
So everything is connected. We noticed that autocracy started to work with each other, like from Orange Revolution, I would say, 20 years ago. First interesting, you know, connections, Cuba, Belarus, and so on. So for us, uh, when, of course, China aggressively uh, wanted to take over our you know, the jewels of our economy and transport and everything we created, we said blunt no. Knowing that everything is connected usually, we understood uh, that Taiwan is like uh, Baltic states, you know. And actually Taiwan, uh, we had embassies in Washington, D.C. who functioned during our occupation. And it's not only Latvian gold that saved our embassy in Washington, D.C., it was Taiwanese cash. Uh, they were shipping cash to my embassy in Washington because we've been supporting each other, you know, we and Republic of China. So we know them for, for ages. They are the island of, not, you know, island uh, of freedom not taken by communists as we were trying to resist. And we actually won against that red dragon. So uh, in two days, my speaker is landing in Taiwan, uh, uh, we are trying to broaden the scope, and I think it worked. Uh, Marco was just uh, speaking about technologies. Uh, we are, I think, the first country in the European Union with whom Taiwanese shared chips technology, and we are building now little Taiwanese Silicon Valley close to Vilnius, University, uh, Vilnius Airport that will produce soon 5% of our GDP. So it's okay, because we are getting richer. We are... Uh, we, in the Baltics, another feature, I would say, we never satisfy, uh, satisfied with kind of average. We want to be the best. So Taiwanese are the best. If they are the best, if they have technologies that will, when we get rich and when EU fund stops, they will create wings for our economy that will let us fly, fly much further. So diversification is an opportunity, not simply a thing that we need to do for our own security. Yes, but we are doing it deliberately only with free and democratic countries. 98% of our trade is with those countries because we learned the lessons. You know, we were all fooled by Russia. Give us your gas network. So, you know, it's just money. Finally, it's ended with harassment, uh, political influences, and look to yourself. Look to Alternative Free Deutschland. That is a Russian product in your own body and you do nothing with them and they will make it much bigger when you know all those migrants will come to your borders again from gaza sector and what will you do actually next elections vote for moscow yeah i mean this is that the commonly made quote about vandal durch handel change through trade there was change through trade but just not the direction that was it expected changed it changed us. germany not uh, not russia it corrupted democracies but Yes, uh, Lithuania has been a leader on China policy. It's been pushing ahead of the pack there and having this big thinking, blue sky thinking, Indo-Pacific strategy is something certainly other countries can learn from. But all three Baltic states have also been in the vanguard of pushing for Ukraine's NATO membership, which, as we've heard in the last few days in the reports about what Olaf Scholz was pushing, was a very different agenda. What advice would you give to the German leadership about why Ukraine should be included in NATO as soon as possible? This is very simple because I, I guess here we share the same understanding that we want to live in peace. If we want to live in peace, and actually if we want to restore lasting peace in uh, Europe, this is possible only Ukraine 
with, in NATO because uh, we understand that Russia has a uh, very clear aim and goal to, uh, to destroy uh, the, this current uh, security architecture, build back empire, and uh, empire is only possible if they conquer and uh, destroy current Ukraine statehood. So in order to uh, defend all of us, from uh, this uh, global uh, uh, nightmare, then uh, we have to uh, build a necessary consensus for that. That next year summit in Washington should be a historic one in terms of that we are able to uh, agree upon uh, among allies that Ukraine will get invitation. And uh, we're not saying only that Ukraine's place is in NATO, but we will make very clear steps in that regard. German decision makers and public should understand that the only escalation or in invitation for aggression is weakness. Russians do not talk with weak neighbors, they invade them. And uh, in our view, in my view, uh, Ukrainian membership in NATO uh, should be sealed because this is the only way how to preserve the peace and stop uh, the violent aggressors. There is no other way. NATO is only security guarantee for all of us, and Ukraine deserves it, and it will contribute. It will not take a security away. It will contribute. Before Bucharest-NATO summit, uh, EU and NATO enlargement always moved together. And this year, we are making historic decisions on possibly uh, starting accession talks with Ukrainians. So it will be just a waste of our taxpayers' money if we think that we can make them EU member without building a fence on the eastern border. Russians will come and grab and kill and annihilate everything we create. So let's don't be stupid and let's proceed in it like we did with Central Europeans and Baltics. Actually, NATO moved to Central Europe before EU, just to Baltics and to some other countries. It moved in parallel, but to do it just to EU, it's too much of Russian romantics, I would say. Right, this is it. We need the EU to thrive, but we need NATO to survive as well. And without that security guarantee, there won't be the investment that will come in for Ukraine's reconstruction. The Ukrainians won't return to their country. Why to return to a country that would be attacked again? So I think the lack of understanding understanding here so far that that is the only viable future for Ukraine and that is actually the keystone of our sustainable security in Europe has yet to happen but thank you for giving that advice to our decision makers here today and thank you all for joining us on Berlin Inside Out. Well, that's been a fantastic discussion with our all-star lineup of Baltic States guests today. We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we did. Having them here in the room was quite an experience, and I can assure you they made a stir in Berlin, saying the kind of things that don't usually get said in this town. They seem to make a stir every time they come to Berlin, as we've noted with artist fabrics in the past in particular. That's right, and indeed it's those voices that are not only being expressed more loudly, but that are starting to be heard more clearly in capitals around Western Europe, and including here in Berlin. And that's going to be a recurring theme for the rest of the season, isn't it, Ben, as we go up north uh, to Warsaw and then eventually uh, west to France and then over the Atlantic. That's right. We're heading up to the Nordic States, then uh, then to Poland and then France and over the Atlantic, as Aaron said, for the rest of the season of Berlin Side Out. And with that, we wish you a schönen Abend from Berlin. Yes, that's all for this episode. Remember to look for our guests and recent publications and other articles featuring them in the show notes. Until next episode, Auf Wiedersehen from Berlin. 